0: We are going to open our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, We're going through a series called Exiles, How to Live for Jesus in a Hostile World, going through paragraph by paragraph of Peter's epistle. Peter was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was with him for three years, and he gives us an incredible word, but it's not just Peter's words. We're not just enjoying words, great words by a great man. Uh, These are the words of God from the Holy Spirit to us sitting here. We have God talking to us. So let us read 1 Peter chapter 1. And if you don't have a Bible, you can put your hands up and we'll get you a Bible. Otherwise, it should be on the screen. Here we go. Down the front, one for this gentleman, Peter. Our welcoming team, how do we let Peter in? That's the question. (laughs) Peter's my neighbor. I love Peter. Okay. 1 Peter chapter 1. Having purified your souls... By your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation." if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Uh, Would you pray with me? Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your Holy Word this morning. Amen. I could imagine that as Peter penned these words, that there may have been one particular scene in his mind as he wrote them. An example, a moment that would forever be etched into his memory and his psyche. It was the night of Jesus' betrayal and arrest. A final meal with the Saviour. A final meal with his friend. A final meal as a group. And as they gathered in that upper room and lay down on couches and ate and drank, before that actually began, John, another apostle, tells us this. from supper, So set the scene. You've got the scene. Imagine the drama. Jesus knows the cross is before him. He knows a betrayer is in his midst. But what's he motivated by? Not self-preservation, not self-esteem, but self-sacrifice by love. John continues, what does Jesus do? He laid aside his outer garments... And taking a towel, tied it round his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. It's a poignant scene, isn't it, when you consider the one who designed feet is now on his knees washing dirty, stinking feet. Even the foot of his betrayer, Judas Iscariot. Jesus, or John continues in verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And then later, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's powerful and poignant, especially if you know how Peter reacted initially. And here is a challenge for us that outlasts the ages. A call to love one another like he has loved us sacrificial servant-hearted dirty smelly and inglorious love it's far from heaven this scene now far from hollywood but close to heaven and don't we love a community like that don't we enjoy being in servant-hearted communities Communities where people look out for one another, they've got your back, they're actually committed to you. It's not just preferential because you're in the same place at the same time, it's true love. And some of us have likely experienced this. You may have a great friendship group, BFFs for Life or maybe your family is like that. You're the fam, bam, jam. You've, you know, you're just in each other's pockets. You know what's going on. The WhatsApp or the text line is constant. If you've got a need, it's sold. If you've got a problem, there's care and comfort. You can be you. Or maybe you're a new uh, migrant to Australia and you found your tribe. You found your people back from your other country. I know there's a lot of fellows here and you've got your fellow crew and that's been a great source of love and community for you guys. Maybe you found it in a sports team. That competitive edge and that desire to win has brought you together, that you're not just teammates, you're, you're blood brothers or soul sisters. I don't know if it... <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully, and it ought to be, the hallmark of the Christian church. And indeed, it ought to be and hopefully is something that you've tasted Here. You see, love, sacrificial love is not an optional add-on to a personal relationship with Jesus, but a vital fruit that erupts out of a people who know, love, and have been saved by Jesus. And last week, we saw this call to holiness, which is actually a a call to joy. And in some ways, last week's passage, verse 13 to 21, was a little bit more individual, personal focus. But now, Peter shifts his his gaze to the community. He's looking now to the church and saying, okay, you were called last week to love God. Now, by necessity, you must love one another. There are two main commands in this text that describe what our communal Christianity should look like and be like. And they're my two points for today. As Peter looks at us, he says that our Christian communities across this dispersion, across modern-day Turkey and Northern Asia Minor, we ought to be a loving community and we ought to be a longing community. A loving community and a longing community. And if you'd like a title for my message, it's Love and Longing, but not in the kind of pop song sense, as we will see. And my hope is that through studying God's word today, we would be shaped to ever be ever more like these two realities as a local church. We have to put it into practice. And so my hope is that it will be put into practice as a result of God speaking to us. So let's jump in to see what Peter has to say. Point number one a loving community. Let me read verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Karen Jobes, in her excellent commentary, says this, One's covenant relationship with God is never an individual matter. To be chosen by God and set apart by the Spirit for the purpose of participating in the covenant in Christ means... Necessarily coming into relationship with others who are also so chosen. The Christian life cannot be lived authentically in isolation. And Peter shifts his explanation from how to live rightly in relationship with God to how to live rightly with one another in Christian community. Friends, the Christian life cannot be lived authentically in isolation. That's why online church can't work, because there's no one around. You can do it somewhat digitally for a time, but the Bible calls us to love in community. The gospel produces a community, and that community is to be shaped by that gospel. The very nature and essence of our community ought to be love. Now that word, that command there, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, is one command with wide-reaching implications. It sounds simple, doesn't it? Love, oh yeah, love. We all want to love. Uh, <laughs> but it's, it, it goes everywhere in our life. It, that's why Jesus summarized the entire Old Testament law into two things. Love God and love neighbor. Focus on those. affects everything in your life. So let's look at some of those words. Love one another. Jesus is saying, or Peter is saying, We are to self-sacrifice for the good of another. Love is not a feeling or a vibe. Uh, Love is foot washing. I'm not sure Jesus was like vibing it in the moment. I'm not sure he was like swelled up in just, oh, I just so love these feet. I want to wash them. This is the greatest thing. It's not romantic love. It's not even just the, you know, the, yeah, the boys, the kind of fun you can have, the bro love that just spawns up in a moment. You know it. Um, Ladies, you might have other forms. Um, it, it's a determined, self-sacrificial love that says, I will lay down my preferences, my time, my money, my energy for the good of you, even if it means great cost to myself. The cross being the ultimate example of love. So we don't, you know, sing pop songs to find out what love is, though they may have echo expressions of romantic love. We look to the cross And we are called to not just have self-sacrificial love, but it has to be directed somewhere, love one another. And he's not just talking about general people in the world, he's talking to the church, that our first and primary love must be displayed to our primary community. And our primary community, biblically speaking, is actually not our family. It's not our workplace, it's not our sports team, it's the people of God. Though all those realms are important. We are to love one another. And it's to be earnest, love. That means consistently and with eagerness. It, it's not necessarily means passionate, like, oh yeah, I really want to do it. But earnest, I'm going to do it. I, I, I'm going after this. I, I'm marshalling my soul and my body and my time and my energy against my sinful nature and will, against the ignorant desires which still wage war in my body, so I can do it. It's earnest. It's earnest. And it arrives from a pure heart. The heart is the deepest faculty, biblically speaking. The heart is where everything comes from in our life. We do everything from our heart, ultimately. And and Peter's saying that it ought to come from a genuine and pure heart. So that's the the command. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. But he gives us two supporting ideas to help us do this. it's, It's not easy. That's a real challenge. So where do we get a pure heart from that actually loves? We'll go back to the start of the verse, 22a. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Peter's saying that by believing the gospel, uh, what he calls the obedience of the truth or to the truth, we now actually have a purified heart. So we don't have to purify our hearts. We don't have to generate purity in our hearts to be loving. By believing the gospel, we have a purified heart. We have a love that comes from outside of us, from Christ himself. And upon conversion, our dead heart is discarded. Our new heart pulsates with new life. And most importantly here, with new love. Peter makes clear that love is not an accident either. It's not just like, optional, you know, good Christians love. No, it's one of the express purposes of our conversion. Look at that word for there. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for what purpose? Why did Jesus save you? One of the express purposes of your eternal salvation is that you would have a sincere, brotherly, and sisterly love for one another. Not a hypocritical love. I'm putting up with you because we're standing outside at church. (laughs) But a real love, a sincere love. More than seeing each other once a week, or even at life group if you're committed, consistent devotion that you would have for your closest friend, brother or sister. And think about this if this is one of the express reasons why we're saved, this is God's mercy and grace to us. Jesus saves us so that we can love one another because remember, we're not home yet. This world is not our home. We're exiles. We're not in heaven with the one who is love himself, God. We're not with Jesus Christ, the one who displayed perfect love. We're not with the spirit who is the overflow of God's love. We are here on earth. And God's way of communicating his everlasting love is primarily through his people. And so he has saved us so that you and I can be models and pictures and examples of God's everlasting love to one another. We are, when loving one another, the expression of the physical, tangible, and sincere love of God. Now that's a motivating thought, isn't it? When you look around, you think, I can be the love of God to one another. That's why I come to church when I'm tired. That's why I go to group when I'm tired. I've had a big week. That's why I keep going because I'm going to be a channel by which the love of God is expressed to other people. That will re-motivate you. You're not going for you, though you you ought to go for you too, but you're going for them. Not that just attending is the the sum total of love. You know, Church attendance is not the be-all and end-all, but it is an expression that ought to come from our heart. So that's the command. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. We get the pure heart from believing in the gospel. And this cuts against our probably, not probably for us, I think, (laughs) but the doctrine of the church that has been built up over time in Australia. We have quite a Jesus and me mentality, but we actually need a Jesus and we mentality. COVID has not helped but instead it's accelerated an individualistic vision of the Christian life. Most of us, more likely without realising it, have probably grown more inward rather than outward as a result of 6 to 12 months or however long as lockdown and the fear of catching disease and the fear of people. Um, I know in my own life I'm less hospitable, I'm less involved, I'm less loving, I would say, Uh, People have grown over this time to enjoy their nuclear family or enjoy their alone time, so much so that they're now trading that in for church family. They've retracted and maybe even replaced home worship. But we must be chastened by Jesus and Peter here. Jesus won't allow us to do that. However, noble our intentions may be, and however great our family or our personal life may be, we are called to love one another. One time in Jesus' ministry, this is a scenario which happened Matthew 12 46. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother, you know, the Blessed Virgin Mary, and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Let that sit for a moment. Isn't that rude? That's my family. I love you, Mom. I love you, brothers. You can join my new family if you want by becoming a disciple of me, but unless you become my disciple, this is my family. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is very radical. Could you imagine that in an ancient Near Eastern Jewish family-centered culture? tribal culture to say, no, it's these guys that I picked up off a boat a couple of years ago. Rebecca McLaughlin, the one whose book we're going to be stealing a lot of ideas from in the next couple of Sunday nights, says this, rather than prizing the nuclear family above all, Jesus stressed the family of the church. Jesus isn't denigrating the nuclear family, He's setting it in its proper context, the blood-bought brotherhood and sisterhood of the church. If Christians lived like this, the the plague of loneliness would be over, and all of us, single or married, same-sex attracted or straight, old or young, widowed or newlywed, would be embraced into a family. These are the first tremors of the earthquake of God's love that will remake the world when Jesus returned. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? That's what we ought to be like. And it's hard. It's going to take reshaping of our, of our hearts and our motives. It doesn't mean saying an outright no to all the good ways we are to express our love, but it means that the first rock that goes in the bucket is God, and the second one is His people. You can't be a mature Christian if you are not connected to His body and loving one another sacrificially. Because connection to a local church is the way that you put this into practice. How else do you serve with the gifts that God's given you? How else do you submit to your leaders? How else do you do all the things that the Bible says? Unless you are doing it, week in, week out with your brothers and sisters. And by God's grace, it is a joy to look out at a church which does this so well. It's by God's grace, I look out at a church where God is on the move, that love is coming from heaven into your hearts and radiating outwards in sacrificial ways, in so many ways it's hard to count. I'm sure all of you have experienced, especially the members of our church, have experienced the sacrificial love of God through people, whether it's yesterday when you're moving, for the cars or you know when you're in sickness and you need people to help come and clean or you've run out of something and you just need someone to go grab it for you you need someone to look after your kids all the amazing single women in our church who have babysat for how many hours i cannot even count they have other better things to do <laughs> yet they've got a new family so they're not really single that's that's their kid in Christ, praise God. A beautiful example. I was, I was teaching on manhood and woman at the academy this week, and we were talking about manhood. We were talking about womanhood. It was great. It was this beautiful moment. I was talking about the, the role of wives, biblically, is called to help their husbands and to use all their gifts and all their strength and creativity and amazing abilities to help their husband and serve them and, and make their family amazing in the world. And as I finished that sentence, oh, there's Rebecca's song. Coming in. And what's Rebecca Song got? She's got this huge, long, you know, wooden chopping board with all these treats that she's baked and cooked and brought in and and this plate of even gluten free food. So she was serving me and she just wanted to bring it to bless her husband and bless the guys that were there. And that was just a rich expression of sacrificial love. No one asked her to do that. No one told her to do that. But out of the overflow of God's love in her, she did it to others. And so, you guys experience that. You guys do this so well, and I just want to spur you on all the more. As we grow as a church, we're going to have to grow in love. As new people join, we're going to have to expand our friendship circles. We're going to have to expand how it means to be Southern Grace Church Parramatta, to welcome new people in. So let's think practically. How are we going to put this into practice this week? Maybe as a practical application, you could sit down and get out your calendar and think, who am I going to self-sacrificially love this week? Put it in the diary. It might be to bless someone with food. I would welcome that. It might be to encourage you might just want to build a brother up through a great verse or just an evidence of grace you see in their life or a sister up. You might want to set aside, I'm just going to set aside 15 minutes to pray for this family. And just that's all. I'm just going to pray for them and pray for them and pray for them for 15 minutes and then text them and say, I just spent 15 minutes praying for you and this is what the Lord showed me. Maybe it's a hard conversation. Love is not all, you know, Sausage rolls, you might need to come alongside a brother or sister and say, Hey, I've noticed this. I- I'm worried for you. Can-, can I ask you a question about this area of your life? So, what are you going to do this week to love one another earnestly with a sincere brotherly love? Now, the reality is, this is hard. <laughs> sacrifices, lo and behold, are sacrifices. So where do we get the power from? This leads to Peter's second supporting idea in our first point, verses 23 to 25. Where do we get the power to love? Well, love one another earnestly from a pure heart or since, or because you have been born again not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. For, and he quotes as a supporting reference to Isaiah chapter 40, which, if you don't know that chapter, take aside 30 to minutes to 60 minutes this week and meditate on Isaiah 40 and be blown away. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever." And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Peter's point here is you are to love because you have a new power. A power that's taken your dead soul and made it alive. You're a new creature. You are born again. And the power that made this happen was the word of God. The gospel is the power of salvation to all who believe. Believing the gospel takes your dead heart, makes it alive. Takes your unloving heart, makes it loving. So therefore, because you too have heard the gospel preached and received, if you are in Christ, good news. You have a new power to love that you didn't have before. You have resources to draw upon. You have a bank account of the eternal love of God to empower you to do this love this week. You don't have to muster it up. Now, it will be hard. You do have to do it, but you have the power. It's already in you. You can step out in love, banking on your reborn nature. You can plan on Wednesday to do something to love someone and know God will deliver you to do it and give you the power to do it because you're born again. You don't have to make it happen. You don't have to do it to earn salvation. You do it because that's who you are. You're a new creature. That's the power of the Word of God. It's so encouraging because as we think about mission, the only way we can turn people around is the preaching of God's Word. That's what takes a dead heart and makes it alive. That's what takes someone in futility and brings them to everlasting hope. And so the Word of God is the power to change us to be loving. It's the power that changes us in the first place. So bank on that power. All right, so let's put it all together. We are to be a loving community. That's the call. It's the second great command. And there's two reasons. One, it's the reason you were saved in the first place. That's Peter's point. And two, you've got power to do it because the Word of God has come to you to change you. So when Peter thinks about what he wants his churches to look like, the first thing he wants is he wants them to be a loving community. And this theme of the Word, I think, leads him to his next point. As he's talking about the power of the Word of God, it leads him to verses 1 to 3 of chapter 2. And our second point, a longing community. A longing community community let me read verses one to three for you again so therefore put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Peter gives us another command as a community, to be a longing community. But first he clears the stage, so to speak. He clears the ground. In verse 1, Peter establishes a precondition for the command in verse 2. Namely, that we are to remove from our Christian community these types of vices. And note that they're all communal vices. They're communal sins. They're not necessarily individual ones, but they're ones that destroy community. Malice, like thinking, how can I hurt someone? Deceit, living in lies. Hypocrisy, putting on a, a fake face, whether it be at church or group or in your normal life. How are you doing? Oh, yeah, I'm good. When you're not. Envy, looking around and thinking, I wish, why do they get it? Why do they get it? I want what they've got. Slander, did you hear Oh, I can't believe they did that. We should pray for them. And what Peter's doing is he's, he's like clearing away an overgrown hedge. Clear the hedge, clear the hedge, get rid of it, so that we now have you know, the, the flooring, the, the foundation to stand on. And notice that he, he doesn't replace vice with virtue in verse 2. He replaces repli- the vice, the sin list, with a longing. And it's totally not what we would expect. And we can't ever do what verse 2 says, though, if we've got those sins present that are in verse 1. And we'll get to that in a moment. So now let's look at verse 2. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. It's a surprising command depending upon your background. Surprising, not because we're likened to newborn infants, because look at what he's commanding. This is Peter through the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit and in the Spirit's grace to us. He gives us a command not just to do something but to feel something. We are commanded here to crave, to desire, to long for pure spiritual milk, which is in the context the Word of God. The word long there denotes a strong desire to the point of extremity, to the extremity of need. Isn't that surprising if you're new uh, to our church perhaps, that God would command not just what you do but what you feel? C.J. Mahaney says this, God commands not just our volitional obedience, that's what we do with our head, but our emotional obedience also. And you couldn't use a more vivid illustration of craving than a newborn. If you, you know We've got a little baby girl, Zoe. She's now, what, I don't know, 15 months, 16 months old. Uh, she's still nursing, but especially earlier on. Actually, no, she's still like it now. When she wants milk, oh man, she, she, does, she hits her chest like, I don't know why, but she's developed that as a sign, I want milk. And then she starts snorting, and then there's the anger. It's like, I've got to get that, I've got to get that milk. Well, Peter knows what it's like to see a newborn. Peter was likely married, likely had children. He's seen it. And he's saying that image of a desperate baby who not only wants milk but needs it, otherwise it will die, that ought to be our hunger and thirst for the Word of God, for Christ ultimately Himself. A question... Is that the case for you? Is that the case for you today? Would those who know you describe you as someone who intensely desires God's Word? I think we can get into bad habits of um, sort of treating the Bible and reading our Bible like it's this checklist or this chore, then we feel guilty that we haven't done it. But, But actually, the real problem starts over here and the reason why we get out of habit of reading our Bible is that we haven't cultivated a longing. You don't have to like convince me to watch the footy. I love it. You don't have to convince me you put beef ribs in front of me. I'm I'm there. I'm already thinking about it now. I was chucking about chicken wings with David yesterday. I'm like, I need those chicken wings. I need to find somewhere that sells buckets of chicken wings. When we're ticking off boxes and feeling bad because we haven't read the Bible in a couple of days. We're well away from the actual desire. The the, uh, the ideal is that we would be marked as a people, not just individuals, but a church which longs, craves, greatly desires the Word of God, the the same Word that is everlasting. We read in verses 24 and 25 that All flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, every kingdom, every beauty, every tasty thing, everything else perishes, diminishes, gets worse over time. The most glorious person, the most beautiful person gets old and then they don't look so beautiful anymore. But the word of the Lord remains forever. It is a treasure It is honey. It is milk. It is the best thing we could ever tap into. And yet, so often, we're so distracted with a million other things. That's why we've got to go back to verse 13, preparing our minds for action, being sober minded, so that we would clear the ground to feast and feed off God's word. And this is not just for happy times. Uh, Peter's not saying, well, like newborn infants, when you first become a Christian, you desire God's Word and then you grow up and then you desire you know, doctrines and church history and just doing the Christian practices. No, this is a state that we ought to always be in. This is a state which we ought to look to and long for if it's not present in our soul. We confess, Lord, I'm sorry that I have not enjoyed your Word as I ought. I'm sorry, Lord, that I don't long for your Word as I ought to long for it. Please change my heart and soul that I would crave your Word. This is a sign of maturity, that you love the Word, that you want it. And it's not just for happy times, it's not mountaintop experiences when you go on conference or camp or hear a great sermon or whatever, that you're like, oh yeah, now I want the Bible. This is for all of life, all our time. If you read Psalm 43, you see this sense that he's in the pit of despair. The psalmist is experiencing depression the darkest of depressions. And yet, what does he say? No, not Psalm 43. 42. Sorry, Jordan. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? (laughs) So he's crying in depression and crying for God's presence, crying for his word. If you read Psalm 119, you'll see how much the psalmist love God's law. That ought to be what we are to be like. So is this the case for you? Do you crave or is this maybe a distant memory? You used to. There used to be times of fervent desire, but oh, it's not a present reality. That's okay. You can come back and ask for new cravings and new longings. That, that, that's the beauty of Christianity. You don't have to have it all together right now. You say, look, I don't have it all together. Put desires in me that aren't there. Create a thirst and a hunger that I don't currently have right now. And God, in His mercy and grace, I believe, will meet that. Because He tells you to do it. He's not going to command you to do something you cannot do. And there's one way, practical way, which I think will most help us do this. And it comes in verse 3. I think Peter is a skilled pastor, and he knows what gets our hearts going. In verse 3, he now turns as a reason that we should long more, and he tells us to recall our conversion. Verse 3, If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. He's not saying, well, you can long for God if you've tasted that God's good, and that's the way it works. No, he's saying... You have tasted that the Lord is good. Do you remember when you first tasted that the Lord is good? Do you remember when you first or times in your life when you read God's word and it was sweeter than honey? You you would have traded in anything to have more of God's word. Do you remember when you were awakened to the glory of God and the majesty of his love and the holiness of his splendor? Do you remember? Well, recall that. Recall that so that you can now have, oh yes, I remember tasting that. I want more. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. I remember when I was 16 and I'd been at church, I knew the gospel, but the Lord did a work in my life. and, And it was actually through convicting me of my sin. I think that's often the greatest pathway to our longing and our tasting is actually realizing how far we fall short. And God convicted me deeply of my sin, that I didn't just do wrong things, I was a wrong person. And that I was going to be judged by holy God. And that if it wasn't for His mercy and grace, I would be sent to hell. And that I would experience torment forever justly that I would have to stand before a holy God. And I remember reading Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which is a frightening but powerful read. And I remember, oh, I just remember weeping and being thrown to my knees because I I couldn't thank God enough. Do you remember your conversion? Do you you know that you were dangling over the pit of hell and in his grace, he pulls you out? I'll recall your conversion. Recall the time that you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good as a way to cultivate those tastes again. Perhaps it's through highlighting for you, it might actually be the goodness of God that you need to be reminded of. You're so stuck in the severity of God. You need to be reminded of the goodness. But some of you, you need to be reminded of the severity of God, that he is holy. That's why Paul says, behold the goodness and severity of God in Romans. And maybe, maybe you're thinking, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know. I I don't, I'm not sure I've ever craved God's word like a baby craves milk. I do think that it's a good moment to pause and consider whether or not you're truly converted. If you've never had a time when you crave God or that you've tasted that the Lord is good, if you can't say, oh yeah, I have tasted that the Lord is good. I may not be presently in that state, that it's the overwhelming desire of my heart, but I know that that the Lord is good. If if you've never been able to say, oh yeah, (laughs) give me anything else in the world, I will not trade it in because I've tasted that the Lord is good. If you've never been there, you need to consider whether or not you're truly converted. Because this is the cry of a newborn infant, a reborn child of God. We cry for milk, the word of God. And you can taste and see today. You can come before God and say, give me this desire because I don't have it. I need it. And maybe my lack of desire is evidence that I'm not really a Christian yet. And that's okay. God will save you. And then I think you will start to experience this tasting and this longing. And the end result is not that just we would have really awesome, long, quiet times, but that we would grow up into our salvation. That the Word of God produces a mature Christian. Jesus said, blessed are you if you do them loving one another, washing each other's feet. And so our, we're not meant to have a quiet time from 3 to 5 a.m. and then come out as a tyrant. <laughs> it's, it's meant to change how we live, though sometimes my family could, I, I do have a long quiet time, and then it doesn't always affect me, but it ought to. The, the, the intended effect of feasting on God's Word is a mature Christian. And we're going to talk about that heaps over this letter, so I won't delve into it now. So let's put it all together. There's a lot there, but two simple things. When Peter looks out at the Christians that he wants to pastor, I think he has Jesus with a towel around his waist, washing his Peter's own feet. He, he wants churches to be exactly like Jesus was, loving one another, serving one another, even when it's stinky and dirty and gross. And so he calls us to be a loving community. And focusing on our new birth in Christ, I think he then, he wants to see a church which is a longing community that feasts on the Word of God, that just loves the Bible and loves Christ who is present in his Word. And so that's my hope for us. That's my hope that we would be a loving community and a longing community. God's already at work. I see this so present in us. We experienced it already this morning, but I want more. I'm not content. (laughs) I want more of that for us. And I want more of it for myself. Now let's pray. Lord God, I pray and ask that you would help us to be a loving community. You've shown us what love is. Now help us to do it and bless us as we do it. We call upon you to bless us as we do it. And Lord, I ask that you would help us to be a longing community Would you put desires within us to crave for you and your word so that we would be matured and changed and our hearts would be warmed to it. In Jesus' name, amen.